Relationships are critical for getting through life. However, they're also quite important once that life comes to an end. So often we hear of individuals' lives being tragically snuffed out, and one of the key ways to obtaining any sort of justice is for investigators to speak to their families, friends, and their community. People whose lives are now lesser for having lost this person. Nevertheless, every now and then, this kind of painful loss becomes painful in a more unsettling and inauspicious way when investigators are faced with the haunting reality that not only is the one responsible unknown, but the victim is unknown as well. Despite a body, despite media coverage, despite countless eyes on the victim, not a single person steps forward to claim them. Yet, there is at least one person out there, with their eyes focused on the broadcasts, who could provide information investigators are desperate for. They know the victim in some way, although hiding a dark truth, unwilling to answer for what horrible thing they've done, they're likely the only one who wants to keep the victim unknown. It was July 11th, 1978, a typical summer's day. What seemed to be another sunny Tuesday would go down in history as one of the most tragic discoveries in New Mexico's history, changing the lives of everyone involved. A foreman for the New Mexico Highway Department found the body of a young woman along Highway 216. She has yet to be identified. The victim was described as overall healthy, standing at 5 feet 8 inches and weighing 145 pounds, she was discovered days after her execution-style murder. Laying on the pavement, it was clear she had been shot multiple times, as there were 22 caliber casings adjacent to her body on the ground. She was still wearing her blue denim Levi cutoffs, a white and navy blue vest or halter top shirt, and dark brown moccasins. The blue-eyed girl had strawberry blonde hair, which could have been brown originally, and her body adorned with Native American-style jewelry at the time of her passing. She only had one wisdom tooth and had four fillings. Her ears were pierced three times on the left ear and twice on the right ear. But what chain of events could have unfolded that led to the murder of Guadalupe County Jane Doe? What was once a regular day quickly turned into a currently 43-year-old mystery. And although her identity is unknown, her killer's isn't. 
police started trying to piece together what had happened as soon as they were on scene. They managed to track down a couple they believed could be connected to the slaying of the victim. Ronald Lanfear and Diana Geisinger were a couple who were far from unknown to the police. Ronald had broken out of a South Dakota jail on July 9th, shortly before killing the victim and two others. Lanfear had been awaiting trial on a burglary charge in South Dakota when he escaped. George Henke, the dispatcher at the Union County Jail in South Dakota, said Lanfear had told him he vomited in his cell and asked for something to clean it up with. When Henke opened the cell door to bring in the requested cleaning supplies, Lanfear overpowered him, took his car keys, and fled in his vehicle. Geisinger testified that she had lived with Lanfear before his arrest, then received a phone call from him after his escape. She borrowed a car from a friend, quote, for the afternoon, then met Lanfear and drove toward Texas where Lanfear hoped to find work. At this time, Diana was a little over seven months pregnant. The weapon used in all of the murders and robberies that followed the escape was a 22 caliber revolver that Lamphier stole from the car of a South Dakota jail guard when he fled the prison that should have been his home for years to come. Ronald Lamphier, the 30-year-old man from Sweet City, Iowa, then stood trial for the murder of Eugene Unger the following year. He faced the death penalty if the jury found him guilty of the murder. Much like the subject of this video, Unger's death was by gunshot. It occurred on Interstate 10 near the Nevada state line in a robbery gone wrong where Ronald intended to steal his car and belongings. He also faced murder charges for the killing of David Leipold, a 21-year-old canvas service station operator. Near Emporia, Lanfear attempted to trade two spare tires in the trunk for money, but the operator refused. Diana testified that she had gone to the restroom, gotten a drink of water, and was dozing in the car when Lanfear came running from the office. He handed her about $200 and told her he had shot the attendant twice in the head because he, quote, got smart, and because Lanfear didn't want him to be able to identify him later. Lanfear denied these claims, saying Diana was the one who murdered both men. The following day, the killing of Guadalupe Jane Doe took place. Although her identity remains a mystery and her fate is not known to her family and loved ones, we know she was far from being unloved. Her heartbreaking story comes from the mouth of her killers. Ronald Lanfear told police how they picked up the girl near a rest area in Perry, Oklahoma. During the ride, she stated she had already gotten a ride from a trucker, but had been dropped off at the rest area because she wanted to call her mother. The victim said it was her birthday that day, and she always called home on her birthday. She was looking for another ride as she was not from the area and was trying to get to California to see her mother. Ronald alleges that he killed her because she bragged about how much she had spent on her guitar and they were under the impression she had more money on her. Although Diana and Ronald had not discussed it, Diana knew that when Ronald went over a viaduct off the highway that, quote, he was going to get rid of her there. All three were in the front seat. Lanfear got out, opened the passenger door, and asked Diana if she wanted out. She responded affirmatively, so Jane Doe got out first. 
She was then promptly shot in the back of the head. Lanfear straddled her body and searched her pockets in hopes that he would find money or valuable belongings. Diana then observed Lanfear take the gun from his belt area. She looked away as he shot Jane Doe a second time. From her pockets, they found only $1.50 and a birth certificate showing it was her 17th birthday. The birth certificate was thrown away and Geisinger claims she can't remember Jane Doe's real name to this day. They later sold the guitar. Lanfear claims again that it was Diana who killed this victim as well and got rid of the body. The loyalty between the two was broken when Lanfear got a job but started cheating on Diana with multiple women and became physically abusive toward her. He then told her to dig a hole because she was going to be victim number four, and with Diana being a new mother of twins, she wasn't going to take any chances. Her testimony was supported by admissions Lanfear made in a suicide note he wrote on October 11th shortly after he learned Geisinger had turned him in, and circumstantial evidence such as the belongings of victims and a possible murder weapon linked to him after his arrest. On the supposed suicide note, he made clear that Diana was not guilty of any of the killings that took place. Geisinger testified that she has not been given any immunity or any promises for her testimony, adding that she expected to be prosecuted. Diana Geisinger pleaded guilty to being an accessory to murder and was sentenced in 1979. Ronald Lanfear was sentenced to death by way of the gas chamber. The sentence was eventually overturned. After a second trial, he was sentenced to death by gas chamber a second time. But yet again, it was overturned. Despite all the efforts from detectives and everyone involved in keeping him behind bars, he was slipping through the cracks once again. Considering certain technicalities, they were unsure if they could convict him again so it was decided that they would extradite him to Kansas, where he had killed his first victim, David Leipold. Lanfear ended up in the Kansas prison, where he should have been all along. He's currently serving the rest of a life sentence. Diana is still alive today and states that she, quote, does not have any recollection of those times as they were too traumatic for her, and she, quote, blocked everything out. She refuses to answer any further questions on the matter. So, who is Jane Doe truly? A few women have been ruled out as possible matches. Lori Jean Amico, Angela Sigrid Ramsey, Nancy K. Tharp, Benita Chamberlain, and Connie Gale Menchaca. There are two young women who appear to be the most popular possible matches for the Guadalupe County Jane Doe. Yvonne Regler, who went missing on August 8, 1977, was from Ohio. She was 5'10 and weighed 135 pounds at the time of her disappearance. She had blue eyes and blonde hair, and she worked at Lorraine Road Gas Station. She was born on July 11, 1960. She was transferred to the Fairview Park Station the day of her disappearance to fill in for employees on vacation. 
At the time, she was working alone at the station. At 1.30 p.m., another attendant arrived to work, and Yvonne disappeared. The theory that she may have run away was quickly discounted by police, as she had never run away before and there was no hint of family trouble. Yvonne and Jane Doe also have similar freckles on their faces. The other possible match is Rosie Schlicker from Kansas City, Missouri, who went missing on March 14, 1978. She was 5'7 and weighed around 120 pounds at the time. She had blue eyes and strawberry blonde hair. Her ears were pierced. She had a tattoo of a Harley-Davidson motorcycle on her right buttocks. She was born on January 21, 1958. Rosie was last seen at the Truman Medical Center in Kansas City for undisclosed reasons. In 2019, her femur was sent to the University of North Texas Center for Human Identification for DNA analysis, although there's no word yet on whether or not the DNA has been proven conclusive. They also tried extracting DNA from a tooth, but were unsuccessful. Her case has been reopened, and with that, a newfound hope that the identity of the young victim will come to light, giving her loved ones peace of mind after many, many years. We can only hope that Jane Doe is one day identified. Even after over 43 years, there are voices who refuse to let the story die, and who remain hopeful that this case will one day be solved. It's important that we don't forget those who have gone nameless for so many years, as it will require strangers to find justice for those whose loved ones are absent. Often when one is caught in the act of murder, the case is clear, open and shut. But the case of Alfred Rouse is a little more complicated than that. It was the 5th of November in 1930, Guy Fox Night, as it is commonly known, and people celebrated with a number of bonfires throughout England. Many stayed up late, not returning home until the early morning hours of the next day. Two men specifically, who had been walking home from Northampton, noticed a fire. Surely this wasn't anything out of the ordinary until they investigated it to realize it wasn't a bonfire at all, but a flaming car. A car with a person inside, their body engulfed and charred beyond recognition. Police were summoned promptly and were able to determine by the number plate that the car belonged to a man named Alfred Arthur Rouse. But there was one thing that didn't make sense. Alfred was alive and well and had quite a bit to do with the body in his car. Alfred was born in 1894 in London to parents who would end up separating when he was around six years old when his mother deserted their family. Alfred, with his two siblings, was sent to live with his aunt and did well in school. He had a certain affinity for music and was noted for his great musical ability. Among being able to play the piano, violin, and mandolin, he was also an impressive singer. Aside from all of this, he was also a skilled carpenter. Alfred eventually took up a job working for a furniture manufacturer. 
But on August 8, 1914, Alfred's world forever changed after he enlisted when a war broke out in Europe. He came close to death a number of times, perhaps the worst of which was during the final day of an intense battle, when a high explosive shell detonated close to his location. Alfred sustained severe injuries to one of his thighs and his head. Alfred had shrapnel lodged in his brain and had to undergo surgery to remove it. His leg was permanently damaged and he was unable to walk without great difficulty for the rest of his life. He spent extended periods of time in army hospitals and in 1915 was determined to have had his capacity reduced by three quarters, leading to his inevitable discharge from the army. The following year, a doctor noted that Alfred had considerable memory issues and was unable to even wear a hat because of how much his scar would hurt. As the years passed, Alfred had more problems with his memory and issues with getting adequate sleep. By 1920, Alfred had made decent progress in recovery, and the pension he had been receiving for his injuries had been cut off. Alfred became a salesman, one who was quite good at his job, and would spend a lot of time on the road. He had made enough money to buy a house with a woman that he had married, and even a car. Things seemed to be going well, but the long hours on the road, spanning days at a time, had Alfred longing for attention and companionship. He was known to meet with various women and had gotten at least two pregnant during his travels. With one child support order already slapped against him and more incoming, it seemed Alfred needed to find a way out before he lost all of his money. And this is what leads us to the burning car with an unidentified victim inside. Allegedly, Alfred once arrested confessed to picking up a man the night of the 5th. Having to use a bathroom, he pulled over and got out, only to look back to see his new friend lighting a cigarette. There was a sudden flash and the car burst into flames. The horrific accident was all the man's fault. But then again, if that was the case, why didn't Alfred go straight to police? But that wasn't the only suspicious thing. While standing trial, Alfred commented about the many women he had slept with while working as a salesman. He referred to these women as his harem, and when that information leaked out into the newspapers, Alfred had lost a lot of favor with the public. He was also unable to explain why he had picked up this unknown person, and went even further into damnation when he explained that the man was someone that nobody would miss. But the most damning evidence was when a car expert realized that someone had forcefully turned a nut and screw which allowed gas to flow into the motor, which made a fire much easier to set. The court came to the conclusion that Alfred was trying to fake his own death to avoid the consequences of his lustful lifestyle. With everything stacked against Alfred, he was found guilty of murder and sentenced to death. Alfred confessed to the murder, but never to the identity of the victim, shortly before he was hanged on March 10th, 1931. It'd be 81 years later, in 2012, when the family of a man named Williams Briggs came forward, believing that he was in fact Alfred's unnamed victim. Williams had disappeared after leaving his home in London in 1930. Now, with DNA testing available, a forensic team went into action to finally put the case to rest. But there was one problem. The DNA didn't match Williams Briggs, determining that he was, in fact, not Alfred's victim. 
To this day, it is still unknown who burned to death in Alfred's car that day, and it's unknown whether or not we will ever know. The thrill and excitement of chasing your dreams can sometimes cloud your good judgment. This was the unfortunate case for one young woman whose body was found on the outskirts of Los Angeles and remained unidentified for over 40 years. A beautiful life snuffed out, a killer not yet found, and a family left without answers. All this and more as we explore the anatomy of murder. Sunday, November 16th. 1969. Trevor Santochi, a 15-year-old hiker, walked along Mulholland Road in Los Angeles, California, birdwatching when he spotted something in the brush of the ravine at Laurel Canyon. The body of a young woman lay roughly 30 feet from the edge of the road, suspended over a 700-foot drop into the canyon by a tree branch. Horrified, Trevor ran home and told his parents what he saw. Police pulled her body from the ravine and the coroner determined she died less than 48 hours prior. If she hadn't been caught by the branch, she likely wouldn't have been found at all. The young woman was stabbed 157 times in the neck, chest, and torso with a common penknife, so viciously the coroner could barely tell the wounds on her neck apart. Though she wasn't sexually assaulted or under the influence of any substances at the time of her murder, she suffered defensive wounds on both of her hands and had a slashed carotid artery. Because she was dressed in stylish clothing from Canada and Spain, lead investigators believe she originated from those regions. Detective Luis Rivera, a current investigator for the case, told CBC's The Fifth Estate that the attack was savage a crime of passion fueled by a rage akin to domestic violence. The only clue to the identity of her killer was a pair of black prescription glasses found feet from her body. Police theorized that the killer murdered her elsewhere before transporting her body by car to the ravine where they dumped her and fled the scene undetected. Police released sketches of the victim in the Los Angeles area, desperate to identify the young woman now classified as Jane Doe number 59. There were reports that a woman named Sherry who matched Jane Doe's description was seen at Spawn Ranch with members of the Manson family. Just four months prior to the murder, members of the Manson family living at Spawn Ranch committed the infamous Tate-LaBianca murders. Authorities thought it was possible that the young woman may have met her end at the hands of Manson and his followers due to the close proximity of her dump site to the Tate murder site. However, no strong leads came from this. Jane Doe number 59's image was reconstructed in hopes of gaining more exposure and recognition. However, her body remained unidentified, so she was cremated and buried in a mass grave. The box containing her case files, dental records, fingerprints, and a blood-soaked bra with her DNA was filed away in an evidence locker with the hope that someday someone would identify her. When the LAPD formed its cold case squad in the early 2000s, Detective Cliff Shepard discovered the bloody bra in her case file and hoped it could help family members identify Jane Doe. He submitted her DNA into databases across the country and released her post-mortem photo to the Doe Network and National Missing and Unidentified Persons System. However, another decade passed without any answers. 
It wasn't until 2015 that childhood friends of a missing woman from Montreal, Canada, spotted the profile of Jane Doe number 59 in the National Missing and Unidentified Persons system. They contacted Anne Jervetson, who immediately recognized her sister in the photos taken at the morgue. In April of 2016, a DNA test confirmed Anne Jervetson's worst fears. Jane Doe's real name was Rait Sylvia Jervetson. Born on September 23, 1950, in Sweden, she was the youngest in a family of Estonian refugees who fled their country during World War II. The family immigrated to Canada in 1951, eventually settling in Montreal, Quebec. Anne described Rait as free-spirited, creative, and cheerful. However, wanderlust invaded her adolescence, and she was regarded as naive and overtrusting. She rebelled against her religious upbringing and wanted to see the world on her own terms. Upon graduation from high school, Rate moved in with her grandmother in Toronto and found work at Canada Post. Around this time, she met and fell hard for a young man in Montreal known as Jean. During a planned visit to her older brother in the summer of 1969, she took a Greyhound bus to Los Angeles to follow Jean. She sent two postcards to her friends and family after arriving, stating she was happily living in her new apartment in Melrose Place and not to worry. This was the last time anyone in Canada heard from her. Reed's family never reported her missing. They assumed she was living according to her free-spirited mentality and thought she would eventually call or visit home. Though the family even hired a private investigator to find her in an era of no internet and limited phone calls, the search seemed futile at best. With Jane Doe number 59 finally identified, the LAPD reignited her case, focusing their efforts on identifying the man she was infatuated with prior to her move. The man known as John was described as tall, with long feathered hair, resembling the popular band The Doors lead singer Jim Morrison. Sketches of Jean and another man Rate stayed with while in Los Angeles were created and released by CBC's The Fifth Estate. Artist Paul Robert, an acquaintance of Jean's in 1969, also created portraits in his likeness. But in spite of all this, the case still remains cold and justice elusive. If you or anyone you know has any information regarding the murder of Reet Jervetson or the identity and whereabouts of the man she was last associated with in 1969, please contact the Los Angeles Cold Case Unit at 213-486-6818. Additionally, the Center of Crime in Quebec can be contacted at 1-800-659-4264. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way, because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.